hope, uh, wrap up uh, this section on the attributes of the church. As you know, since uh, the start of the new year, we've been doing a series on what the Bible teaches about the body of Christ. We've looked at the various metaphors and images that Scripture speaks concerning that, that special relationship that the people of, ha- of God have with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through faith in Him. We have seen how the church is itself uh, the visible manifestation of God's kingdom here on earth. We've looked at um, the, the distinguishing marks of the church, the, the preaching, the, the administration of the sacraments and prayer uh, and the administration of discipline. And then now we have begun to consider the attributes of the church. And, um, you know, we confess with the rest of the church worldwide that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, and this evening we'll look at those last uh, two attributes uh, the church's Catholicity and the church's uh, apostolicity. Apostolicity. It's apo- apostolic nature, it's a big word. Uh, I always put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable uh, when it comes to that. Uh, But we'll consider those things. And so we're returning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, where it's not so much uh, an exegetical uh, overview of this section, but it is a longer passage that brings into focus many of these attributes of the church itself. And so I figured it would be a good way to kickstart us uh, in this evening's lesson. This is Paul writing uh, to the church of Ephesus saying this, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, remember he is writing to a church that is predominantly comes from a pagan background. You Gentiles, once in the flesh, call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you We're at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both of us, both Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Speaking there of those those civil uh, regulations you saw under the old covenant, those those barriers have now been torn down now that Christ has come, that Christ might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And uh, again, abolishing that hostility between Jew and Gentile, and might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think there's a certain red flag that pops up when we speak of believing in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, 
I think for many of us, for, for some of us, you may have grown up in a Catholic background and your, your eyes kind of jar thinking, what am I doing here in a Protestant church for saying we believe in the Catholic church? Uh, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, there's just so many questions that arise. How is it that we could say we believe in, in a Catholic church? What is it that's meant by that? And when we say that we believe in an apostolic church, I'm sure there are a number of other uh, kind of images that pass through our mind. If I hear of uh, somebody going to an apostolic church, I think of some type of Pentecostal-type hole-in-the-wall congregation that you might see passing down the road, you know, in Sweet Home. Uh, and, and yet, these are things that we actually do confess. We actually do believe in the church Catholic. We do believe in the church apostolic. But we have to understand properly what we mean by that. And that's what we're going to focus on this evening, uh, looking at the, the Catholic nature of the church and the apostolic nature of the church. Now, when we consider uh, the word Catholic, it, it's, it seems somewhat scary. But let me make it less scary for you. The word Catholic means universal. That's what it means. And so when we confess one holy uh, Catholic church, we are confessing in one holy and universal church. It's something that's perhaps uh, underappreciated in this day and age, that Christ has redeemed for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and race. Under the old covenant, uh, the redeemed body was constituted within a single political entity, the nation-state of Israel. But now that Christ has come, Uh, those boundary markers, those markers that were determined by circumcision um, and uh, in in many ways uh, race or ethnicity, Uh, race is probably too anachronistic of a term, Um, but by bloodline have been broken down. It is something that goes out, and of course uh, I say that now, but you will recognize when we look at this that even under the old covenant, the the offer of the gospel was to anyone. There, there are many Gentiles under the Old Covenant who believed and were joined, but they were joined to the nation-state of Israel. But now that Christ has come, those dividing walls of hostility have been broken down. So one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament is the anticipation that this will come. You think of Isaiah uh, chapter 2, that in the latter days will come. All the nations shall flock up to the mountain of the Lord. You think of Joel 2, which is uh, perhaps the most famous Old Testament prophecy, one that Peter himself uh, uh, preaches on on the day of Pentecost, that in the last days the, the Lord says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In other words, the people, the redeemed people of God is not restricted to a particular nation. It is now something that transcends national boundaries. It's not restricted to a particular sectarian group. And so that's what we mean when we speak of the church's Catholicity. It's speaking of the universal nature of the church. In one sense, you know, we recognize that there are what we call uh, national churches, um, you know, you have the Church of England, you have uh, the, the state churches in, in kind of the old uh, European states. And in some ways, that's well and good as long as we recognize that the church is not restricted to one nation state. It is something that, you know, your, um, your entrance into heaven is not contingent upon whether or not uh, you, are, uh, you have a, um, 
uh, a passport where your citizenship is, is also bound up with the United States, right? There, there's a reason we don't have an American flag behind the pulpit here. Because uh, your citizenship, your national citizenship, your earthly citizenship is not can, uh, a requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is here that people from every uh, nation, tongue, tribe, and race can come to worship freely, regardless of your earthly citizenship status. There is, uh, as Paul himself says, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. That there is what we call a free offer of the gospel. Whosoever will may come. Paul gets at this point over and over again, not just here in Ephesians 2, uh, where he's really speaking against what we might call segregated churches. Right? He says that middle wall of partition has been broken down. You don't have a Jewish church uh, and then a Gentile church under the new covenant. That is That really undermines uh, the purpose of why Christ came. When we speak of the Catholicity of the church, we're speaking of a redeemed people whose characteristics transcend national and ethnic barriers. That's Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3. So the church is not restricted to a, a particular nation state. That's why I, I actually think that there's a certain irony when people refer to themselves as being Roman Catholic. I want you to think about that. Catholic says what it means universal. It's universal so long as you identify with the church of Rome, a particular, uh, a particular place, a particular uh, uh, papal authority. It's not a, there's, it restricts the universality of the church uh, in that way. You think of Islam, which at least in the early days of the rise of Islam, it was a religion that was restricted only to the Arabic peoples. Everybody else was to be subjugated. It's one of the reasons why you see the Quran is not uh, to be translated uh, at least understood outside of the Arabic language, how different it is with the Scriptures, how the, the part of the mandate of the Gospel is that the Gospel and, and God's Word be understood in every tongue, tribe, and race. There, there carries with it the necessity of translation, uh, of Bible translation, so that everyone in every, um, every language can understand God's Word. So we speak of the Catholicity of the church, it undermines this wall of partition, these various walls that have been erected to segregate um, the people of God. This is why Paul will say here in Ephesians 2, for through him we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. That when I, uh, as a minister, preach the gospel, I'm not just preaching uh, to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant landholding men above the age of 30. I am not simply preaching to, uh, let's say, uh, women or just preaching to children. What am I doing? I'm preaching to anybody who will hear the gospel. There is no restriction to the free offer of the gospel. That's why we call it a free offer. There is no point where you could say, okay, I'm preaching to everybody except for you. You don't qualify. Because what is required is not some type of uh, a merit badge or some type of uh, ethnic identity marker such as circumcision. Rather, what is required is repentance and faith, something that the whole human race is uh, obligated and called upon to do in obedience to Christ. There is a universal character to the church. Because there's a universal character to the church, there is thus a universal offer. If ever 
Uh, and I, I think this should, we should apply this to our own hearts whenever we are seeking to share the gospel with somebody else and we want to and then we go, ah, I just don't think they're worth it. You fill in the blank for the reason why. It could be, uh, it could be uh, race, ethnicity, uh, uh, tax bracket. Uh, it, it can be any number of reasons that you can make up. You're like, oh, I, you know, I don't think brown-eyed people deserve to hear the gospel. You know, these are such artificial reasons that, that that's just not what the gospel is. The gospel goes out to all people. And that's what we mean when we speak of uh, believing in a universal church. The Old Testament foundations make this very clear. It's with, you know, in, in the Old Testament, it was restricted to Israel, but the promise under the new covenant was that those boundary markers would be shattered. As uh, the book of Revelation says, that Christ uh, has come to redeem a people from every tongue, tribe, and race. And so the universality of the church blows the lid off of a nationalist identity. That's why, you know, we don't require you uh, to uh, subscribe to uh, uh, the teachings of Scripture plus the Constitution. Because that wouldn't be real fair if we had German immigrants come in and become members of this church. It wouldn't be fair uh, if we had English immigrants come to this church. What unites us is, is our faith in Christ. Um, that, that is what unites us. That's what distinguishes us as a separate people. I'm not saying that um, you know, all the nations should have a, a single constitution. Uh, that's, that's not my point. My point is the church acts according to different principles. We are citizens of another kingdom, Paul says. I'm trying to see. I'm just looking at the time, Sorry. Of course, when we talk about the universe, uh, the universality of the church, I don't want us to go so far as to, to, to think that I'm, I'm preaching some type of universalism, that now the church constitutes every single individual. Remember, the criterion is faith rather than, uh, you know, fill in the blank, uh, how much money you have in your bank account, uh, which neighborhood you live in, the, uh, uh, the pigmentation of your skin, and so on and so forth. That's what we mean by the universality of the gospel, and so the universal nature of the church. And it is universal because it is centered upon not a particular location like Rome, but is a church that finds its grounding in the apostolic teaching. And that's what we'll get to in a few minutes when we talk about the apostolicity of the church. And so when we speak of the church as being one, what distinguishes the unity of the church from the Catholicity of the church. We have to recognize he has talked about two different things. Uh, we're talking about the church as being one. It's a church that is not divided. Uh, and that's what we mean by the church being one. But when we talk about the church being Catholic, it is a church that transcends national markers, national identity boundaries. We need to recognize these four attributes that we have, that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These attributes, excuse me, help describe uh, each one of these attributes help describe the other. It is a spirit-wrought church where we've been baptized into one body. Where holiness marks this single body apart from the Word. And it is a people that is grounded in apostolic teaching. I, I want you to recognize, when we talk, so when we talk about Presbyterianism, 
yes, it's a denomination. Um, but what, what I really appreciate about the Westminster Confession of Faith is that it really tries to show how Catholic the church is. We're not trying to, to restrict our doctrine, try to make our, our doctrine as rigid and specific as possible to, uh, to, to keep out as many people as we can. Rather, we're wanting to uphold the robust nature of what Scripture teaches concerning the people of God. I, if you've got your uh, um, hymnals, I invite you to turn with me in the back to our Confession of Faith. Is the Confession of Faith? Yeah, the Confession of Faith's in here. Uh, chapter 25. Page 863. This is a chapter on the church. Now I want you to notice how many times the word Catholic pops up. Paragraph 1. The Catholic or universal church, by the way, see I'm not making things up. Catholic means universal. Catholic universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect. Chapter 25, paragraph 2, it speaks to the visibility of the church Catholic. The the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, in other words, not confined to one nation as before under the law. So paragraph 1 speaks to the invisibility of the church Catholic. Paragraph 2 speaks to the visibility of the church Catholic. Paragraph 3, unto this Catholic visible church have been given ordinances... Paragraph 4, this Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, basically saying that uh, every church is going to be, there's going to be degrees of purity from congregation to congregation. I want you to notice the repeated refrain throughout each of those opening paragraphs. It is the church Catholic, the church Catholic, the church Catholic, the church Catholic where we as Presbyterians believe in one holy Catholic church. But it is not Roman Catholic. You see, the Catholicity of the church is not bound up with one's association with the city of Rome or the Pope. As, the church, as Scripture confesses elsewhere, what is it that binds the church to Christ? It is the Spirit The Spirit effectually applies the work of Christ to the hearts of believers, uniting us uh, to to Christ by faith in our effectual calling. Notice that this is even what the Nicene Creed affirms. You you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the uh, the way in which the Nicene Creed is broken off. It's, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And of course, the... the, um, Uh, The confession of faith regarding the nature of the church is a subset of our teaching in what we believe concerning the work of the Spirit. In other words, what we're seeing here in chapter 25 of the confession, if we were doing a class on the Westminster Standards, uh, I'd be able to spend a little bit more time on this. But what we're seeing the the Westminster uh, uh, writers uh, affirming here, what that we're seeing here is that there is a reclamation of Nicene Christianity. In other words, what, we're, what, they're trying to, what the authors are trying to say is we're not trying to be schismatic. We're actually showing that we're trying to hold the proper bounds of the church's Catholicity in its proper context. That it is rooted in not blind obedience to the Pope, but in the apostolic teaching of Scripture.
That is what makes it Catholic. That is what makes it universal. In other words, what we are claiming here is that it is not we who have erred, it is Rome who has erred. Because they're trying to restrict who it is that is part of the church by one's allegiance to a single figurehead, that figurehead not being the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we say that the Catholic Universal Church consists of the whole number of the elect. Well, that's what we mean by the church Catholic. But we can't understand its Catholicity apart from its uh, apostolicity. The apostolic nature of the church. And you see that the last few verses of Ephesians 2 really get at this, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Notice this, that the church is not simply built on the foundation of Peter. It's built on the foundation of the apostles. It's something we see throughout the whole New Testament, that there is, the, the, the ministry of the apostles was to lay the groundwork for the church through their particular teaching. If you'll turn with me to, to John chapter 17 real quick, I think this is really important in understanding what we mean by the church's apostolic nature. One of the arguments that you'll see when people, uh, uh, particularly in, uh, let's say, Eastern Orthodox churches or, or Roman Catholic churches, they'll talk about, uh, and even sometimes your kind of old school Anglican churches will speak of the, the nature of apostolic succession as being the, the litmus test as to whether or not you're worshiping at a true church. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in John uh, 17. Uh, verse 20. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, uh, in other words, I'm not only praying for the apostles who are with them the night uh, that Christ is about to be betrayed, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me, notice this, through their word. What we find is the basis for a true apostolic church is the church's fidelity to the apostolic teaching, not necessarily a visible continuity of what we might call apostolic office. Um, If you read Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History of the Church, a a great 4th century uh, uh, historical document outlining the, the growth of the church uh, one of the things that Eusebius does, he lists all the, the popes in succession to try to demonstrate that he could claim that the apostolic succession, uh, you know, beginning with Peter in, in uh, uh, Rome all the way to uh, the present day. But I, I find it kind of awkward when uh, the, the sixth pope, pope's name is Pope Sixtus. Um, sounds kind of made up to me. Um, one of the things that we see when we talk about the church's apostolic succession um, how should I put this? Well, I have it here. If you still have the old handout that I gave like a month ago, uh, organizational succession does not guarantee doctrinal succession. I need to think us to think about this practically. Um, I hope that we, as a church here in Corvallis, here at Westminster, I hope we are a Bible-believing church. We are trying our darn tootness to be a faithful, biblical, Bible-believing church. But just because uh, Westminster Corvallis in 2021 is a Bible-believing church does not guarantee that this congregation will be a Bible-believing church three generations from now. Think of the old mainline churches. You know, First Presbyterian Church of you know, any, any given street in America. 
big congregations, beautiful building, um, rock-solid preaching, a couple generations pass, how faithful are they? That's really going to vary from church to church. Just because the, the same building is still standing doesn't mean that there is apostolic succession. Just because you can trace and name the number of senior pastors in a given, uh, in a given church doesn't mean that you are carrying on a faithful apostolic succession. The church's uh, apostolic nature is fidelity to apostolic doctrine, and that doctrine is found in the New Testament. Don't let any other criterion dissuade you. What defines the church is not the decree of the Pope or the Bishop of Rome. What defines and characterizes the church is what Scripture says. Because what the apostles taught were the very things that Christ himself taught the apostles. Either in person in his earthly ministry or under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we mean by the church's Catholicity, it is universal, and then it's apostolicity that is grounded in the teaching of the apostles. And that's why it has to come time and time and time again. What is it that we're doing as a church? We're having to, we are confessing what the Bible teaches. We have to build our hope and our confidence and our doctrine and the way in which we treat one another on Scripture and Scripture alone. To do so would to try to be a house, building a house on sand. It is on the solid rock of Christ that our hope is built. And so for us to deviate from what Scripture teaches in any of these ways would spell certain destruction. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But if it continues uncorrected, then we are spelling certain doom uh, either for ourselves in the future or or for our children. And that's why we have to keep, uh, when you raise your kids, keep bringing them back to the pages of Scripture. Why do we believe this? We go, well, what does the Bible say? Keep sticking their face in Scripture day in and day out. When you gather around the dinner table and you have family worship, and you're just reading through the Bible, just saying, why is it that we uh, you know, don't do what the world does in fill in the blank? Why do we reject you know, gay marriage? Why do we uh, not um, you know, subscribe to papal infallibility? Why is it that we you know, fill in the blank? There are so many things, and it always comes back to because everything that we do must be built off Scripture. This is the attribute of the church, that it has been united as one body through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. It is holy, and so we are called to holiness of life. It is universal in that we cannot say, put up a sign restricting certain people uh, from coming on the basis of certain kind of identity markers. That anyone's come to, welcome to come hear the gospel because all are called to repentance and faith. And the very things that we preach, I'm not here to preach a political platform, but to preach the apostolic message of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we mean by the attributes of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. I believe next week uh, David's going to continue uh, with Daniel, and then uh, we'll, we'll return to the Psalms, and then we'll keep on trucking with what uh, the Bible tells us about other facets of the church as well. Um, but uh, let us uh, close in prayer and then stand and sing the doxology.
Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have reclaimed us for your own. We ask that by your Spirit's work, you would continue to redirect us to the teaching of Scripture, that we would be faithful uh, to proclaim all that you've commanded and given uh, to your apostles that have been put into the pages of Scripture, uh, that we would be faithful to fulfill the Great Commission and to make disciples of the nations. And so we ask that through the faithful preaching of the gospel here that you would draw in your elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation for the sake of Christ, who has redeemed for himself a people, is called to be holy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.